Hello and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. Baseball season is in full swing now. My Giants have something like a cool 500 record. They've won and lost the same number of games. When you said 500 record, I was like, oh, that sounds like something positive. (laughs) Which is better than I thought that they'd do, considering uh, they've been plagued by a number of injuries. Um, And they're beating the Dodgers, which is all that really matters. And in honor of baseball season, we saw a film that actually I had never seen before. And I felt a little guilty about never having seen this movie. Yeah, I was kind of shocked that you hadn't seen it. I feel like when you talk about baseball movies, Kevin Costner will always come up because of Bull Durham, um, to a lesser extent, for love of the game, but above all, Field of Dreams, which is also kind of a fantasy movie. And uh, it's kind of a little bit more than just a baseball movie. Anyway, Field of Dreams, that's what we're doing today. It's my pick. It's just funny because I'm pretty sure I saw it as a very young child because I have vague memories of it as I was watching it, but I'm not even interested in baseball. We should start off by saying, obviously, this movie had an enormous impact on the culture when it came out in 1989. It's still considered a classic. It's still quoted all the time and misquoted all the time. And I think a big part of it is you don't necessarily have to be a baseball fan. Yeah, it's a baseball movie that isn't really about baseball. It's about family relationships and sort of what you're doing with your life. And it's a lot deeper than you would expect it to be. A couple ads on the tape. Let's just get them out of the way. Lindsay, did you know that Universal Studios, you know the Universal Studios theme park in LA? Uh Uh-huh. They're opening a second location in Florida, and it's going to be open in 1990. Holy shit. That's just like a year from now. (laughs) And now there's (laughs) Universal Studios in Japan. A nice little time capsule for the Orlando park opening up. After the credits, there's a second ad, which is for Batteries Not Included. Which is a Spielberg movie? It's one of those Spielberg Presents movies. Yeah, it didn't look at all familiar, and I had no interest in seeing it. It looks not so great. I've definitely heard of this movie. I think that there's some old folks that are going to get kicked out of their apartment building. And little robot aliens come to Earth to help them out by uh, flipping pancakes and other various things. (laughs) It looks dreadful. No, I'd probably watch it. So, Field of Dreams. This movie comes out in 1989. Um, Kevin Costner almost didn't do it because he was supposed to be in this movie called Revenge, which is based on a Jim Harrison book, but that kept getting pushed back and back and back, and, uh, he got this script for Field of Dreams, and he told the producers of Revenge, like, hey, I'm going out to Iowa, I'm gonna shoot this movie out in the corn, and they let him do it. And um, I think just about everybody knows the broad strokes of what this movie's about. It's set in Iowa. It is about a farmer who's out in the corn one day and he hears a voice that says, if you build it, he will come. And he soon starts to hallucinate. No, not hallucinate. He soon starts to realize, because the magic in this movie is real, the voice is telling him to build a baseball diamond to 
make the financially insane decision to mow down extremely valuable acreage of his corn and build a baseball diamond. All his cash crop. This was the struggle that I had with the film, is that you've got two really well-educated people from Berkeley. She's originally from Iowa, so it kind of makes sense that she wants to go back there and stuff. He just kind of feels like, yeah, sure, I'll become a corn farmer, which... All right, but then he hears whispering in the cornfields and decides that means he needs to destroy the way they make their living. <laughs> I just, and they just, they can't even really afford their house as it is. They're barely getting by. So he decides to spend their entire savings and his wife the whole time is like, yeah, okay. She puts up a little bit of resistance a to it. A tiny bit. Okay, this is this is my counter to that. He clearly has some daddy issues that he's working out. You know, this movie opens with a long montage about growing up. You know, he loves family. He loves baseball. And uh, he clearly had a rocky relationship with his father. And in the scenes leading up to this... He talks about how his father never never seemed to pursue his own dreams. He kind of never did anything unexpected. Yeah. And now he feels this drive to build a baseball diamond. And they're a dual-income household, right? It's not super clear. They don't really develop her in that way, in that kind of detail. Although she does get character development and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it's not totally clear, but it seems like she's the one sort of checking the finances and trying to be more responsible. He was clearly not a math major. I find it refreshing that they're both Berkeley students. They're <laughs> both former a, hippies. He even wears a Berkeley shirt in the movie. The, the, the thing that's funny to me about that, too, is that apparently at the time... Kevin Costner was a Republican originally, and then it was in the early 90s that he sort of had an internal reckoning and registered as a Democrat. And this movie kind of maybe is a part of that shift. I don't know. It's impossible not to talk about the politics of this movie. I mean, we're recording this podcast in Berkeley. There's a certain uh, there's a certain political bent that's associated with Berkeley and UC Berkeley. And I, for one, find it really refreshing that this movie about farmers and about baseball, these kind of conservative All-American people. The central characters are these hippies, these former hippies who, you know, idolized the 60s, and James Earl Jones' character, who's, you know, this beatnik writer. Like, it's not at all what you would expect this film to be like. Like, you would imagine it would be like, oh, about the homeland and kind of anti-intellectual, but it's completely the opposite of that. And it's really fun because of that. And it's also just interesting, too, because you said George Bush, the the junior, not the senior, was a fan of this movie, right? It's one of his favorite movies, supposedly. I think a lot of conservatives like this movie. And I'm not saying that it, it belongs to one group or another. I'm actually glad that, you know, there's something in this for everybody. Yeah, it's kind of a crossover movie. I feel like if this movie was made now... I don't. I think it would be either one or the other. I don't think. I also that, think if it was made now, I don't think it would be one or the other. It would be washed out. 
Do you yeah. know what I mean? They, I think they would have they wouldn't have had those complexities to these characters. They would have just been way more general and made it just sort of nondescript about where they were from or anything. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that really makes some strong choices, and I realize it's informed by the the novella that it's based on, which it's, is written by a Canadian. <laughs> isn't that interesting too? Maybe that's why it's such a strange book. But a Canadian man obsessed with J.D. Salinger. So maybe you should talk about that a little bit. So in W.P. Kinsella's original novel, Shoeless Joe. James Earl Jones's character is actually just J.D. Salinger. In the same way that this movie... Talks about real baseball players and uses their names. He had... He featured an actual author. Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't a big deal for Shoeless Joe Jackson and uh, Archibald Moonlight Graham, but for someone like J.D. Salinger, who's known to be very isolated and litigious and doesn't want any of his work appearing in any medium... Um, let alone film, because he's worried everything will be bastardized, I guess. I think that his lawyers, like, threatened to sue. I mean, there wasn't much they could do about the book, but they basically said, if this is ever made into a movie, you can't call that character J.D. Salinger. So that's where we get Terrence Mann, which is kind of the liberal writer at the center of this whole thing. And then, interestingly, Kevin Costner and his wife, who's played by um, Amy Madigan, who's also an Uncle Buck, uh, they get the Kinsella last name as a nod to the author of the book the film is based on. You bring up a good point in that we've got quite a bit of a cast crossover, not just with Uncle Buck, but with a bunch of movies that have been on the show. Yeah, I mean, the main one is Gabby Hoffman, who plays their daughter. She was in Uncle Buck with Amy Madigan, and she was also in Sleepless in Seattle. And a number, she was a major child actress who's actually turned out really well professionally in her adult career, which is awesome to see. Um, I can't think of the actress's name right now, but during the PTA meeting, which... Also, I don't, you could not make this scene in a movie now. I mean, they would not make the choice to do this, where... I, I think they might, but I think how it went down would be different. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, because the term Nazi is now not apparently an insult. Okay, so just to contextualize what we're talking about here... Amy Madigan's character, Annie, goes to this PTA meeting with Ray, Kevin Costner, and she's enraged because there's this mother that is a part of the school who is trying to ban a bunch of books, including apparently The Wizard of Oz, even. Just anything that defies her worldview is out. And so there's this confrontation during the meeting where the book-burning mom is talking about how Terrence Mann's books encourage all kinds of horrible things, including the mongrelization of the races, which I don't think is something anyone would say now in a public space like that. I I don't know about that. I mean, I think in certain spaces, but at a public school nowadays, I feel like this is one of those things where politically things have changed so much, where all of that is kind of coded and hidden more. She would make that implication, but not in that kind of strong wording. Maybe not. I, I mean, I think that the crowd would be le- would be a little more hesitant to clap in the age of, like, cell yeah. phone videos and stuff. But it's interesting, too, because you have Annie fighting back. And the way she fights back, she straight up calls the woman a Nazi and compares her to Eva Braun... 
And she and all the women really counters with is, uh, well, your husband's a crazy man who built a baseball diamond in his yeah. corn. But it's so funny because people so overuse Nazi, you know, calling other people Nazis and stuff online and arguments online. But in this situation, it sounds severe, but it's like, no. Yeah, that sounds about right. She's yeah. kind of a white supremacist. She's for eugenics and book burning. And and the reason I, I bring that scene up, just to tie it back into casting, the Nazi cow, as she's called by Annie, is the uh, evil policewoman in Cobra. Yeah. She's gonna wreck our new world. You know who I'm talking about. That other classic movie, Cobra. Which she's playing kind of similar characters. Yeah, and she's definitely typecast as just like the worst woman you could imagine. But it's one of those bright moments for Annie's character where she gets to kind of stand up and be powerful and make this statement and she gets the whole town to rally behind her. And so she essentially prevents this book burning event. And the the banning from of these books from the school, and then she's just on such a high, and then you've got Kevin Costner who has his weird hallucinations about baseball, <laughs> who's completely self absorbed, not really paying attention to how his wife is going through this moment. I guess we are getting a little ahead of ourselves because yeah. I think you can divide this movie up in sort of the three stages, and I think when I think of this movie, I sort of think of the first stage, which is Kevin Costner kind of new to farming, hears the voice, builds the baseball diamond, doesn't know why, he just feels compelled to do it. Mm-hmm. And one night, old Shoeless Joe Jackson, played very creepily by Ray Liotta, shows up, and he realizes that this baseball diamond, I mean, it's never said explicitly, but it's somehow like a portal through which primarily the uh, Chicago White Sox team of 1919, the so-called Black Sox team that threw the World Series, allegedly. They can basically visit our world, and, you know, more and more of these players start to trickle in. So I think if you were to divide it up, if you build it, he will come. That's the message to build this baseball diamond. And then he gets the next message, which is ease his pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what he's kind of scribbling during the PTA meeting. And he figures out somehow, just kind of intuits, like, oh, I need to find Terrence Mann. (laughs) Because they're talking about Terrence Mann at this event. Although his wife is also sort of getting these powers of premonition. Well, I don't know Because she has has a dream that Terrence Mann and her husband are having a hot dog at Fenway Park. Which leads him to basically kidnap James Earl Jones and take him to a Red Sox game. That's funny. I forgot that she had that dream. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I kind of figured, oh, she could just see the players on the baseball field, which not everyone can see the players appearing on their baseball field. And then it becomes a point of contention with her family. He's able to convince Terrence Mann that these messages that he's getting are real Mm -hmm. because he gets another message at Fenway Park that's basically that says go the distance yeah he sees the uh but we find that Terrence Mann gets that message too and that's Mm -hmm. why he suddenly believes because he actually gets the same thing and he has that feeling and that compulsion to go so much so that when they leave he doesn't even pack a bag yeah that's a little strange like they leave from the front of his apartment it seems like and 
he just goes with the clothes on his back. And it's not just that. They hear go the distance and on the scoreboard it says the stats for a player named Archibald Moonlight Graham, who is a real player, who played one game for the New York Giants in uh, 1922, but never had a turn at bat. And so this is, introduces kind of the, the third mystery of the movie and kind of the third act where... And this is where time travel comes into play. Yeah. This is actually a pretty complicated movie. It is a complicated movie. It's very episodic, though. I feel like these kind of, you know, these stages of the movie kind of roll into one another. I think they have this theme of sort of unachieved dreams. And where people pursue something, but they give it up. Including Terrence Mann himself, who was a writer, but then just over time became disillusioned and withdrew from society and all of his work. Uh, basically, we're we're on a road trip that began in Iowa, went all the way to Boston to grab Terrence Mann, and is now going to Minnesota to try and track down this doctor, uh, th- they're this ex-baseball player who they find out was a doctor but has yeah. passed away. Meanwhile, Annie's brother, who works with the bank, it seems like? It, it seems that way. I, I never quite understood what his relation with the bank is. He uh, or his partners, his off-screen financial partners. Yeah, he's essentially telling her, "Hey, by the way, you guys are bankrupt. You can't afford your house, so the bank needs to buy it. Like, is going to take it from you, and then we'll. I, I'm going to make a deal where you can continue to live on the house, but none of the property will be yours. But we're going to rip out the baseball field because it needs to be cash crop." And so that she's dealing with this and trying to call her husband while he's driving past Iowa to get to Minnesota. And this is where the kind of time travel happens. Because mm-hmm. when they're spending the night in Minnesota, they're kind of bummed that they came all the way out here. And, and uh, Graham, they find out, had died in 72. Kevin Costner wakes up and he finds himself in 1972. And he's able to talk to Burt Lancaster, who plays old man uh, Moonlight Graham. I like the way that they reveal that the passage, or that he's now in 1972, because he sees the marquee for The Godfather. And then he looks at the car registration on a license plate, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it says 72, which is a nice way to do it. It's a very cinematic way. It's not like running up to someone like, Terminator style. What year is it? (laughs) I thought that was very well done. Ray and Terrence hit the road and they encounter the younger version of Moonlight Graham, who they then cart all the way back to Iowa to play uh, with his team of ghosts, which has expanded significantly. But it's interesting because they take him all the way back to Iowa only to find that he was really never meant to be a baseball player. It wasn't that he missed his opportunity in baseball, but that he really was meant to be a doctor and to save lives. And they kind of discovered this through Kevin Costner's daughter being knocked off the bleachers by her uncle, Annie's brother. And she's choking on a hot dog, they discover, but she's saved by Moonlight. Kevin Costner had this idea that, oh, you had to give up your dream and you settled to be a doctor, but, and he just can't believe that he doesn't have any regrets about that. Yeah. And I think that you're right. I mean, he, 
Kevin Costner was so convinced, like, oh, I never had a turn at bat. I gotta bring him out here so he can have that at bat. And he does it. He does his little, like, sacrifice fly and scores a run in this game out in the corn. But when it comes down to it, like, the reason that he was there, you know, sort of spiritually is to save his daughter. Yeah. He, you know, crossing the diamond and turning back into Burt Lancaster with his little doctor's bag. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that kind of plays into that theme that you were talking about of just dreams delayed and Mm -hmm. I think it kind of helps him with his daddy issues too to some extent because he kind of had this idea of his dad is this man who never fulfilled his dreams and he was kind of derisive of that in some way and they never really got along and I think then realizing that maybe you're not meant for this one thing like it's something that you find joy in but finding another purpose or some other thing to do in life isn't necessarily terrible. Like, that's not necessarily going to ruin your life. Maybe that's more suited for you anyway. I think the one thing that's a little disturbing in this movie is that Terrence Mann seems to walk to his death in the corn. Yeah, that is a little confusing. It's very confusing, because there's this opportunity for Ray to walk into the corn, but then Terrence Mann tells him, No, Ray, you have a family. And it's unclear. I mean, you walk into the corn, you're basically going into the afterlife. I mean, we're to assume. That's what it seems like. And it seems like, you know, Ray is all set to abandon his family and go into the corn. Unless he just doesn't understand that that's the deal. I mean, there are a lot of rules that sort of either get broken over the course of the film. Or that they seem to just not know what the rules are. For example, um... Shoeless Joe Jackson walks up to the perimeter of the field and he can't cross over. And the the implication is that, well, he can only materialize on the field because that's the pull somehow. But then with the doctor, he's able to go from his youthful version of himself. He crosses over that threshold off of the field and he turns into the doctor version of himself. But the doctor version of himself is also dead. So that's where it's not really clear how he's able to do that. It would have made more sense if they brought the daughter over to that line, that perimeter of the field. It ultimately is a fantasy movie, and yeah. I feel like we just kind of have you, to go with it. You have to make a lot of you have to make a jump yeah. for them. It's interesting that there's a lot of kind of sixth sense style conspiracy theories that James Earl Jones is dead the entire movie. Yeah. So much so that James Earl Jones himself was asked to comment on them. And he didn't necessarily play it that way, it seems like. He, in the interview, it sounded like he was was speaking as if it could go either way. Either Mm -hmm. that he was living the whole time or that he was dead the whole time. He he kind of left it up to interpretation. I wonder if Terrence Mann knows what's going to happen when he goes into the corn because he's talking excitedly about writing again. I mean, he hasn't written anything since the 70s. Yeah. But it seems like he has dreams again. But then if he's walking to his death, how does he fulfill those dreams? Like, are we just seeing one part of the afterlife where the baseball players go and there's another part where there's a bunch of old writers? Just like you can hang out with Mark Twain and write stuff together. But it's confusing because Ray tells him to tell him all about it and what he's seen, which implies that he would be coming back. But then I don't understand man's comment about, Ray, you have a family. Unless the idea is that he'd be gone for a while 
and then would come back and there would be some stretch of time where he's not there. It's really unclear. And, uh, I, oh yeah, one thing we forgot to mention that kind of ties in Shoeless Joe Jackson to Ray's father is when Ray was 17, he basically slammed Shoeless Joe, said he was a criminal to his dad, and that was the reason for the rift between them. Um, because they were both big baseball fans and of course there's a lot of controversy over whether or not shoeless joe actually helped rig that world series this movie seems to posit no he definitely did not help his teammates do that but basically it seems like all of this comes down to if you build it he will come and ease his pain these are all kind of addressing his father whose ghost appears on the field and they have a Nice little game of catch that seems to repair all their wounds. As cars drive up, because they are coming to yeah. buy tickets and save them from losing their house. $20 a pop to see Kevin Costner have play catch with his ghost dad. No, and it's, well, because I, I think the whole teams are going to come out and they're going to see an old-timey baseball game. But the thing that's funny is this is all set, this idea of people coming and buying tickets is set up by the daughter, who gives this kind of freaky premonition. She speaks to people just... Older people, not knowing why, but they come to Iowa. Well, Terrence Mann has that premonition. But the daughter says it first. Oh. So the daughter sets it up, and then Terrence Mann kind of repeats it. And rolls with it a little yeah. bit. But the daughter Specifically is Specifically $20 a ticket. Yeah. The daughter is initially the one that sets up that idea, because she's kind of talking about how people will just compulsively drive up to see the baseball players. Think about how this world that's been imagined here... And it has a lot of fantasy elements, but there's not a ton of free will. Yeah. Have you no- Did you notice that across the film? They are compulsively doing all of these things that they don't necessarily want to do. It's not necessarily in their best interest in that, in, in that kind of immediate perspective of what's going on in their lives. Although I feel like he could have ignored the call. If he heard the voice, he could have decided yeah. not to build the baseball diamond and not set this crazy thing That's in true. motion. But think of these hundreds of cars that are driving out to this place that they don't even know exists. It's a little weird. It's a little creepy. Which is a little sad considering that the popularity of the sport is declining and Terrence Mann has this, you know, beautiful, eloquent speech about how baseball will always be, as time moves on, baseball will always be popular in America. And that's not so true anymore. I don't know. I found that to be a little sad. Aww. Um, It's really popular in Japan. That's true. So you can still go to this baseball diamond. It was built, I guess, in just in somebody's cornfield in Dyersville, Iowa. I guess for the 25th anniversary of the movie, Kevin Costner went back out there. Some of the other actors in the film went there. But I don't know exactly how it works if they charge admission. That'd be pretty bad if you had to pay 20 bucks to see this uh, baseball diamond. I don't know. That's the price that was set up by the movie. Although yeah. there were supposed to be ghost players that you could watch. And that was in 1989. So I guess one of the controversies of this movie that annoys some baseball fans is that Shoeless Joe Jackson is portrayed as batting right-handed by Ray Liotta. Mm-hmm. Even though he was a lefty in real life. 
And this got me to thinking, because basically it came down to Ray Liotta's a righty. He, you know, practiced hitting left-handed, but he just couldn't make it look convincing. I was thinking they should have pulled a Titanic, where famously James Cameron to, I don't know what it was, I guess to make a historically accurate version of the boat pulling out, he had his costumers make backwards costumes for everyone and just flipped it in post like a mirror image so i feel like there was there could have been some trickery where they just make an inverted costume for ray Liotta and then mirror it in post to make him look like he's hitting left-handed do you think it, that would have looked weird i guess it wouldn't have really looked weird i don't know if people would have noticed except it would have been challenging for kevin costner then because they have scenes where you see both of them in the shot and so then Kevin Costner would have had to pitch with his other hand. Mm-hmm. I feel like they could have done it. I feel like there's so many camera tricks you can do. And I still don't notice the shots in Titanic that they've reversed because they are so diligent about it. It was the late 80s. Like, maybe that just wasn't something that they were thinking about. Or maybe they thought people wouldn't notice. But yeah. this was before the internet where everyone complains about everything. It doesn't really take away from my enjoyment of the movie, personally. Uh, it maybe in the afterlife we're all righties. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? And in a movie about uh, ghosts of baseball players and time travel and uh, playing catch with your dead dad, I, I think it's a minor inconsistency, <laughs> a minor hurdle to jump. You know, Sean, there's another Tapeheads crossover actor that we didn't notice earlier who's that art lafleur who is in man of the house and cobra oh you're right yeah he's a he was like a big character actor in the 80s and 90s he's also in the sandlot which is another big baseball movie really got around i do remember him in man of the house all right sean it's about that time again do you buy it rent it or tape over it you know, I was sort of on the fence a little bit. I mean, this I feel like this is a movie that fathers and sons watch together and you kind of have to grow up with, and I did not necessarily. I am going to give it a buy it. I do feel like I can recognize its classic status. It's really grown on me. We watched it twice uh, for this podcast. Part of my reasoning is just this film would not be made now. Um, Not just the political stuff that we talked about, but just all the bold choices it makes. This, I feel like any big studio now, they they wouldn't make this kind of like mid-budget level kind of esoteric baseball fantasy movie that's Mm -hmm. also a family movie. It's like, it's so sincere, at times very schmaltzy, but just so big-hearted and unusual and strange. I think it's just such an interesting cultural artifact. And it's entertaining. Like, I think it works as a baseball movie. It works as a family movie. I think all the performances are very good, and it's very memorable. So I'm going to give it a buy it. Interesting. Bold. What about you, Lindsay? I think I'm going to go with a rent it. I definitely enjoyed it. I can see why it captured people's imaginations, but there are a few things that just really bug me. <laughs> like mainly mainly that the wife just completely goes along with his his totally insane baseball scheme. 
it just I, I kind of wish I saw them fight about it a little bit more. I mean, I guess she's supposed to be really awesome and you do really like her when she has that confrontation and she's all riled up after, you know, pretending to be in a boxing match with someone as they're walking out of the school. But there are a lot of things I liked about it. I, def I definitely think it's worth watching, but I don't know how often I might return to it. So next episode, we have a very special guest. We have our good friend, Ben Bellamy. He's an actor. He's a teacher. You can get ready for this special episode by checking out his film, Prep School, on Amazon Prime. Yeah, his so film. Wish. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know how I would benefit from that plug. But he picked out a movie that I'm very excited to revisit. Liar Liar with Jim Carrey. Is that uh, one that you know? Yeah, I loved that movie growing up. It was so much fun. Yeah. It's classic Jim Carrey. And uh, we'll have that episode up two weeks from now, we promise. I'd like to thank <laughs> Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes on tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 